Good evening, everyone, and good evening to you, Jono. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you going this evening? Very well. And the reason that we're not here with Ian, or maybe Ian's not here with us, is that he's not well. We're well, he's not. So Ian's got the flu, so he won't be joining us this evening. Certainly done the rounds because I know you were down with it. Your family have been crook. My family's been crook. I'm the only one I think so far who's avoided it. So very good, mate. Yes, I was certainly smashed by it for a couple of weeks, um, and uh, I went deer hunting towards the end of the second week. And actually, I think it actually did me the world of good to get up on that hill and fresh air. Yellow air through my lungs. I did. I thought I was going to, you know, be coughing and spluttering all the way up and down, but I was fine. That's good. But um, it was yeah, a fresh, yeah. fresh air. But it's certainly hanging around, and I'm just back from Nundal, where it was uh, very cold and wet at times and icy at times, and I haven't got anything. So maybe it was good that I got it in the comfort of my own home rather than down there. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a bit unpleasant being down there when you're sick. It looks like it's going to be pretty cold down there this week um yeah, they're, forecasting, yeah, forecasting, <clears throat> they're forecasting snow potentially on the tablelands yeah tomorrow, i think so i think yeah if you're in nundal i reckon there'll be some snow coming down well when we left um and we went in through the uh, i suppose vulture or i suppose that's how you pronounce it Volca, i think they're Volca or vulture yeah way um you you, you leave Walker and uh, you turn on, I think it's called the Topdale Road or something like that. I can't think of yep. something, Topside Road or something like that. That turn off yeah. there when we were going home. So we we're coming out of Nundal and we were turning left onto, I think that's the Oxley Highway. There was a snow on road sign right there. Yeah. But I think that was left over there from the weekend because we were going out Tuesday morning and the, the, Sunday into Monday was a pretty tough night. Yeah, because I was down um, Ben Lomond, uh, mm -hmm. and we the first day that we were there on the Wednesday, so the Wednesday before you, um, and it was there was on the on the um, <coughs> New England Highway there was signs saying snow and ice mm -hmm. on road, um, and then it was it wasn't too cold, but it was wet. We had a lot of rain come through on the Friday. Uh, Friday and Saturday, we had quite a bit of rain come through. So, um, but no snow. It wasn't cold enough for the snow. So. Well, when we were when we were first looking at it before this, you know, the rain event end or rain events happened, which by the way we didn't really get much of, which was good. But um, it was saying that it was going to snow, mm. but it didn't happen. So maybe maybe with the with the with the rain comes in, maybe that 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 affects it a little bit. Yeah, well, when we were, so we stopped off in um, Ballandine on the way down um, just to pick up some wine, one of the wineries, and we were speaking to the to the property owner there, and she was saying that um, that the night before, so the Tuesday night, was the first night in about two weeks that hadn't had frost. So mm -hmm. it shows you how cold it's been down there, um, and I think it just warmed up before that rain event. So, yeah. um, and we were hoping that it would be pretty cold, but I mean, there in Ben Lomond, we didn't even have frost. So, um, yeah. Which is it's probably a, a good thing and a bad thing because I had the kids with me, but we had a nice cabin with a log burner and it was pretty toasty inside. Um, can't complain about that. But a bit warmer I, than you and Nundal. <laughs> yeah, I also hunted a property at Ben Lomond and that was a place that regularly got snow. Um, they regularly got up there. So it looks, um, looks like pretty good deer country down there. It was pretty nice. 
Um, he, if this particular property had the, the second highest peak in um, on the New England on the property. Oh, okay. And so, and the guy who ran this property really looked after in a caretaking role, a number of other properties. So it was a really great place to go deer hunting and rabbit hunting and stuff like that. You know, yeah. things there, but we saw we saw rabbits, we saw foxes. Um, mm. Didn't see any deer, um, but yeah, certainly a lot of rabbits and foxes around. There was, yeah. And on, on the side of the road, everywhere we looked was just foxes. There was just so many around. It was mm. crazy. Yeah, we saw lots of, like on the road, you know, saw lots of dead foxes and, and yeah. cats and things like that. And we saw a number of rabbits, you know, proper rat. You sometimes see hare, but actually proper rabbits down there and down down in Nundal. And we saw lots and lots of native wildlife. Unfortunately, the only wombats we saw were dead. We saw two little dead ones. They weren't, they were only juveniles, they were only small ones. Hippos. Trucks, I should assume. Uh, yeah, those, those trucks on the Nundal Forest Way, they, those trucks just go flying through. You always see coxes everywhere. Yeah, that on, unfortunate. On, they got, you know, they got hit by a vehicle of some sort, um, which was a shame. But you know, echidnas, lice, reckons he saw a quoll. I have seen a quoll down there myself, so it's not that unusual. Um, echidnas, and you know, the, the, the rabbits and hares and foxes and deer didn't see a pig um so yeah and we saw saw some nice deer numbers too we saw a, a bachelor mob of eight plus at one stage and then saw them again in the same location but every time we went back in there it was fogged that location was fogged out we just couldn't get we'd you know and i mean i mean i don't mean it was foggy it was fogged out like you know 20 meters you can't see anything in fact it was so fogged out at one stage um Tim took his shotgun rather than his rifle. He said, I'm, <laughs> I'm literally going to step on something. Yeah, I reckon so. Yeah. Well, that's good that there's still some good numbers in there because you know oh. we were down we were down there in what late April, um, and the numbers weren't great. There was a couple deer here and there, but certainly no mobbed up deer. Um, I know mm. we're coming to the end of the rut, um, but there's so much pressure on that forest over the Easter period and the rut period. Um, I think it just takes a bit of time. I think a bit later in the year is probably a better time to go, but you can, you can never call it. Well, we saw, well, we were down there for three days and we saw deer, well, I saw deer on the first day because I shot it, I saw deer on the second day because I shot it, I saw a mob of deer on the second day, shooting him, but I wasn't shooting at the time. Coming back that later that night, saw part of that mob in the same, very much in the same location and just didn't see any deer on Monday, but I was wondering if that was because Monday the forest was so active because they were hauling timber out. Mm. Yeah. Maybe that, that that might have been, maybe it was just so active. And the thing is we didn't really push off, off road too much. I had my son with me. We were just doing, so we would just go to a quiet place in the forest. I'd look for contour lines that were widely spaced together, you know, so widely spaced apart rather than tightly together, so, you know, flatter areas. And we would see there's a vehicle track there, and we would just walk that track. And sure enough, we spotted deer. So, so you don't have to go in the thick country all no, the time no, to find deer. No, no. You might not find the, you know, the uh, a, a big buck doing that. You might do, okay, but you might not. But we certainly saw deer in transit, and we were able to pick them up. As I said, one of the deer was basically around the car. Mm, lovely. It was literally at the car. I had a 
kind of get, I could, I could see it through the car. Well, that's amazing. The, you know, the glass on the other side is going, it's there. It you think with the amount of traffic in that, I can see it. You think with the amount of traffic in that forest that they stay away from vehicles, but. Yeah, well, well, it's funny because where we pulled up, where we shot that deer, which was very close to the car, because I basically, we pulled up and, you know, we, we were in and there was no tire track and it, it was wet, so you could see if there was any movement. There's no tire tracks going in. We went into um, Tugalo and just went, oh, this looks like a nice part up here. It looks relatively flat. Let's try this out. Drive in. And also the track had a bit of a stone base, so I thought this is a bit of track to be on. Um, that was another thing I was considering with the boy. You know, I didn't want to go anywhere too off-roady in case things got wrong and I've got my son with me when we get stuck. So I went down and we went, went, to, went down a little gully and there was a place to pull over in the track, like a little three-way junction. So let's pull over right there, mate. Pulled over and I didn't like, you know, pull right over. I just pulled off the track literally got out of the car and I go, there's a vehicle coming and then the vehicle comes down that track that very track we pulled off and it was a guy and we gave him a wave and he um he had his swag set up in the back of his ute and he must have been leaving because the next day we went in there again and we found his campsite he was camped up in there and um, we met some other two young guys who are way up in the top part of Nundal up in the old farm country. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, they weren't doing very good at all. They, they, they hadn't seen really any game, which was a shame for those guys because I think they were pretty new to, the, new to hunting, so that was a shame they didn't see anything. But they they came up and said, what are these prints? And I said, mate, that's cattle. And uh, <laughs> Tim saw the cattle. There's cattle up in there. And yeah. they were tagged. So, so yeah, it was, but it, I... I I thoroughly recommend hunting in that place and winter, you know, it takes some preparation, but it's a real adventure. So it was really, mm. really good. Which there's video coming out and by the time this podcast gets out, that video is probably already out. So we're kind of doing that for that future passing. Let's talk uh, about rifles as a compendium to our caliber conversation. Sure. So we're not talking calibers, we're talking rifles. Talking rifles. Let's Sounds good to me. Yeah. So uh, to, so I suppose to start, um, what brands of rifle have you owned? So I have owned um, Krico, and I still own Krico, which is a German um, mm-hmm. German rifle, quite quite old. Um, I have a 308, which is actually the first rifle I ever bought for myself with my own money. Why did I buy it? Because it was cheap and it was in a caliber that I wanted and I could afford it. Um, and then a few years later, um, here in Australia, actually, I found a Krico 22 secondhand in a gun shop. It's probably, you know, several years old. When I say several, it's probably 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, still super smooth action, which the Krikos are renowned for. Um, so I bought it and love it. It's super accurate. Um, what else do I own? I own Tika. Um, I have owned several Tikas, um, and they are probably my favorite rifle. Um, and then I've got a Breda shotgun, but I know we're talking rifles. So, yeah, personally in my safe, I've got Krico and Tika. That's mine. Okay. What about yourself? A little bit more varied than that. <laughs> so I've owned uh, the Starver. 
um, which is a um, is a, a, a Morza, basically mm -hmm. a Morza 98. Um, Seiko, uh, Tika, Winchester, and I've owned a couple of different types of Winchester, Rossi, and which was basically a Winchester copy, the 92. Um, Chiapa, which I've just bought, which is a 22, um, and it's a copy. Basically, it's like the Marlin 39. Very similar to that. Uh, CZ. Mm -hmm. And what else is there? There's probably something else in there. CZ. Marlin. Marlin. Yep. Yep. And the more exotic. Um, I owned, I used to own a um, M1 carbine made by General Motors, or specifically the inland branch of General Motors, so it was World War II, because they, they made firearms. And there was a thing called, an, uh, I used to call it an SAR, but that was a semi-automatic rifle. But it, what it was, I think the brand, it changed hands. It was an Australian brand. It was called Australian Automatic Arms, I think it was. Yeah, that sounds about right, Australian Automatic. And they basically built a 5.56 to um, tender to replace the SLR. Mm, okay. So it looked like an SLR, but mm. it, was in, it was just like they put an SLR in the wash. And it was just smaller, <laughs> and it shot 5.56. And it... Um, it was synthetic, as in either the grip and all that was like a nylon, you know, synthetic nylon composition. Not fiberglass, it's more of a nylon. A composite top, yeah. Yeah, and um, it was a piece of junk. It was rubbish. <laughs> it was rubbish. I can, look, uh, uh, there's probably people out there who love them. I could see why it didn't get the yeah. arms contract. Yeah, there's this... There's a certain yeah, a certain feel to a rifle for me. It's got to have that right fit, the right feel. The stock's got to be a good, decent material. Some oh, of them just don't, just don't do it for me. It's a, it just yeah. didn't work half the time. You know? <laughs> I had, uh, if I remember the um, you know the 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 cocking lever was quite far forward, and you're always you know, trying to clear it, jammed all the time. Yeah, look, and I mean, over the years, uh, I have owned some other brands as well. Um, I've owned the original Bruno, so that's the precursor to the CZ. Yeah. When they were the original Eastern European, so the first when they were a Bruno, yeah, yeah. So the first rifle that I ever started hunting with was a Bruno 270 um, with the old ZKK action. Um, obviously, I've owned CZ since then. After they were bought by America, and I never found them to be as good as the Bruno. Um, the Bruno was such a beautiful action. I know that the, the action is very well renowned amongst the mm. uh, the big game hunters um, for the Magnum, you know, for the, the Magnum calibers. Um, but yeah, the CZ for me, I bought a CZ back in 7x57 and people can refer back to our, our caliber chat where we spoke about that. Um, but yeah, I had a CZ in it and I just didn't really get along with it. It was nothing to do with the caliber. The rifle for me just didn't feel great. It just, the stock didn't have a good feel to it. It was cheap wood. It just wasn't for, for me. Um, so I sold out and bought a Tika. Um, and since then, I think I'm on my second or third Tika. Um, I just love them. They, they're such good workhorses. Um, why did I go for the Tika at the time? It was a, a good rifle. 
um, it had the synthetic stock. I was living in the UK at the time and hunting in some pretty, you know, horrible conditions, as you know. Um, you know, a lot of snow, a lot of wet, and the wood for me just couldn't trust it. Um, I found, you know, potent the potential for it to swell with the moisture, etc. So I went for the synthetic stock of the Tika. When I moved to Australia, first rifle I went and bought was a Tika because I just loved it. It was so accurate, it was so smooth, um, and not overly expensive. So for me, you know, the Tika is a great rifle. Um, I know it's made in the, I believe it's made in the same factory as the Sarko. I've never owned a Sarko. Um, you've got a Sarko at the moment, don't you? Yeah. And how do you find that compares to the Tika? I haven't, I haven't run around through it. I mean, look, it, it, it from my aesthetics point of view and from a pick it up and feel point of view, it is very, very nice and nicely made rifle. I haven't run around through it. Uh, I mean, I've chambered, you know, I've, I've worked the action and I've picked it up. But I haven't put anything through it yet. Um, but it's a, certainly it's um, it's a it's a quality build rifle. Um, I have to admit that there is a, there is, and a lot of people won't like me saying this. There is there is a, there is uh, the Tika and the Sarko are very very close cousins. Um, you know, they probably wouldn't be allowed to marry. <laughs> <laughs> They're very close. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a bit better in terms of not even build build. I would say it just feels better in build materials. Okay, it's a better it's source. Build, yeah. I wouldn't say build quality feels any better. It's a build materials. Okay. Yeah. So for me, I mean, <clears throat> one of my hunting mentors, he always said to me that a teak is a workhorse. It is. It's I a tool. Too. I had a Ruger. I forgot about that. I had a rigger for years. <laughs> Can't forget about them riggers. I had a rigger. Forgot about that. How do I forget about that? God. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so I'll I'll say it again. So what a mate of mine said to me with the teakers is that they they work courses, they're tools, they're designed to be thrashed about, to be, you know, shot, to be carried in the bush, to be scratched, to be, you know, not dropped, but you know, they can take a beating. And it's not something to be overly protective about. If you've, you know, if you've dropped three or four thousand dollars in a Sarko, you're going to be very protective of it. Whereas with a Tika, you know, you can, you can, you know, wor not worry about a scratch or two on it. And that's what he, for him, that's what a rifle was. He was a, a, a deer color. That's what he did. He works for the old Forestry Commission um, in the UK, and he shoots a couple hundred deer a year. Um, and for him, you know, Atika, that was his that, that was his go-to rifle. I think they're now being issued Sarkos, so that kind of says something. Um, but they, you know, I think he's on two or three hundred deer a year that he has to shoot, um, and they have to be headshot and and all the rest of it. Um, but that was it was his on his recommendation that I bought my first Tika, and I've never looked back. It was a beautiful rifle. It was so smooth. I loved. I had the the first one I had was the Super Varmint, so that was the heavy barreled. Yep. Um, with the adjustable cheek piece as well, um, the big thick forend, which was a beautiful mm -hmm. rifle. Big weighted, forend, yeah. Yep, it weighed a ton. Um, mm. But and I had a moderator on it as well, which added to the weight. Um, but it was so accurate. Um, it was it was beautiful, um, and it had the um, built-in Picatinny rail as well. So, mm. um, and I guess that can that can lead us into you know from a mounting perspective. Are you a do you like the Picatinny rail? Do you prefer proper, you know, the, the, the standard scope mounts? What, what do you go for? Okay, so answer lots of questions there first. Um, the re I've owned one, two, three tickets. 
Um, I currently own two. I sold my 2D3. The reason I sold my 2D3 was I wasn't using it. I just was it. I, it was a wonderful gun to shoot at the range because it was, you know, it was lovely to shoot. You could shoot all day. It was cheap. And but I wasn't using it other than the range, and I, and I kind of don't like range only rifles. Um, so, but what drew me to Tika, and especially the Tika T3, which is back in 2008 when I got mine, was they had a great left hand range. That's what it was. Um, you know, even you know, not too long ago, it was not easy to buy a left hand rifle. Or you had a very small option or range of options. Tika, when they brought out the T3, had a good range and it expanded throughout the um, as as the, the rifles became more popular. That the, the um, left hand um, options grew. So that's one of the reasons why I I like Tika. Um, other than those kind of, you know, the, the obvious that you know they they back they were a good price when they first came out. They were, you know, really quite competitive. You got a lot of bang for your buck. They were great out of the box. They had a couple of, um, uh, I suppose, um, challenges to them. One was the um, plastic bolt shroud was was a bit mm. of a problem. Um, the uh, the other thing was. It seemed that the factory mounts didn't really like 30 cals. Um, they failed. Um, a lot of people, they, though mine didn't fail for about six years, but they did fail. Did and fail. when they failed, they felt you went, oh, okay, that's it. And you replaced them with Optilox and away you went. Um, I've uh, reviewed, owned, fired a lot of tickers, and they are tack drivers. Um, to me, about that thing about being um, uh, workhorses, uh, there, there, there is no doubt they are workhorse, but my tickers are not. My, I've spent a lot of money on my tickers. <laughs> they are very good rifles. Um, and I suppose my my thoughts around that is always: if you give me a Porsche, I'm dumping the clutch. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going. If you put me in a Ferrari, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if it can hit 300. Okay, I, I, I don't care. It, it's, it's not, it's not going to sit in my garage. I'm not going to, you know, put a bit, a ribbon over it and take photos. I'm going to use it. So, um, I don't. To me, that idea that you know, if it's this kind of gun, you can be a bit rough with it. This kind of gun, you know, nah, if it's a nice rifle, I'm using it. That's what it's. I mean, that's what it's built for. Race cars are built to race. Good rifles are built to hunt with, so that's that's my that's my uh, philosophy in life. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy a two thousand three thousand dollar watch and have it in the drawer. I'm gonna wear it every day. I'm gonna wear yeah. it on the wrist, you know. So and that's how I mean that's how I've treated my my rifles. I look after them. They're very very nice. I've spent a lot of money customising them, but they get used. Um, in fact, one of the things that I turn over rifles is when I look at them and go, I'm not using that thing. It's going. And in fact, when I got the latest uh, Tika, which is the which is the the custom rifle, I sold my scout rifle, which was Maruga. I sold it because I said I've got now I've got two 308 scout-like rifles. That one's going. No need for it. Yeah. So Nothing's gone. It's I've got a better version. It's gone. That's it. So I, there's no. Um, I don't have that kind of uh, 
attachment to them. I'll, I want good quality, high quality gear, but if it's not being used, I'm going to move it on. So that's my, and in fact, there's there's a there's a uh, I'm going to have, I won't say his name, but there's a there's a person who comments on one of the Facebook pages who's always a bit disparaging of us in our in our, in our podcast, and he called me a ticker cuck. Now, I'm, I've thought long and hard about how that could be physically possible, and I'm, I'm, I'm unsure how it could be. But anyway, so, yeah, so uh, I'll, 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 I thought, hmm, how would that work? But anyway, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, an, uh, uh, un- I'm an unreserved Tika fan simply because when I wanted a nice left-hand rifle, that was the model to go for, even though then it was still hard to get, a, it was still hard to get one. You had to order them. They took a long time. I think my rifle took 11 months to turn up. Really? Wow. Because they were, at the time they were making them in runs. So they kind of said, we're going to start making the 306 left-handers in July or something like that. You know, So <laughs> you order it and then they get around. You know, it's not like they were all building it for you. They said, no, that's when we're changing over the dies to make those <laughs> ones. That's when it is. And so, yeah, it took a long time to get it. And I learned a valuable lesson there. Don't get a PTA un- unless they have it in stock. Because mm, it's only valid. I think, I, think I literally went through three PTAs waiting for that rifle because they would just li- literally run out. Yeah. And they'd run out. So in the end, I, after you know, so if I've ever had that situation after that, I would say, here's a deposit. I want it. When, mm. when you know it's landed, then I'll get a PTA for it type thing. Um, and that was it, yeah, because I did the... 90 days, that's it, over, got a new PTA, 90 days. Well, yeah. So I'm chewing PTAs. If the PTA is anything to go by, I mean, I've just done one recently and it was approved in 24 hours. Yeah. So that's incredible. But the rifle was... No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So imagine how many you would go through then. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a valuable lesson. So, yeah, wait till the rifle's here before you put your PTA. Don't do a PTA because you'll just, you know, you're then... You just keep on losing those PTAs. So uh, moving to, uh, I suppose, before we move to, to, to mounts, though, um, so, you know, brands, I like Tika, but I'm a lefty. Um, my Ruger Scout was a lefty. It was an international. And again, when Ruger brought out the Scout, I was very interested in it because it seemed like the kind of rifle that I'd want, but it was right-handed. When they brought out the left-hand version available in Australia, they called it the International. It was like the Generation 1. They were, had the slightly longer barrel, but it didn't have the big flash of pressure on it. When that became available in Australia in left-hand, I sold my Marlin 30-30 and bought that. So I went, that's what the Marlin's been doing. That's a better version of the Marlin, so that gets replaced. And that was a, a Ruger, a very good rifle. Um, if there is, to me, if there is a real workhorse brand, it is Ruger. They make very utilitarian but very nice rifles, and some of their stuff is really nice. Like they, they have a, in the bigger calibers, they have a, what they call the Safari. Mm-hmm. I think they call it the African. And they, they have some very nice rifles in those Africans. And, of course, the, the number ones, the Ruger number ones are very oh, nice as well. That's a that's a beautiful action. I love mm. that number one. That's, yeah, that's a, a dream rifle for me would be a 375 Holland Holland in a Ruger number one. That's, Oof. that's yeah. They're only about, you know, they're, they're tiny little things because they've got no action on them. You're yeah. basically sticking the, 
a bullet in the bore in a way. Yeah, well, there's no there's no mag and, and that's right. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. It's like a shotgun. It's just straight. And I thought before we get into um, mounts, we should probably give some clarification about rifles and about the different types of actions. So, if we kind of ignore or not get into semi-automatic or auto-loading actions because yep. the availability of those is very difficult for most people. If we look at the actions that most people have available to them, we have, you know, what we know as bolt action. Mm -hmm. That's just standard, yeah. It's standard, but in, in reality, we should be we should clarify that that's that's actually rotating bolt action. Yeah. And that is the fact that, you know, if you understand a bolt action rifle, you rotate the bolt uh, because most that, most rifles have a bolt. So, mm. that, you know, the bolt action can be, we tend to use that to describe what we call a rotating bolt. And in that rotating bolt, you have probably the two, you know, biggest categories is you have controlled or push feed. Controlled being um, associated with, you know, primarily with Morser. And the fact that, you know, so that the, as you feed the rifle, as you feed, um, as you actually, so as you operate the action, it actually has a grip or contact controlled grip on that projectile. Yep. And it feeds in the, um, the, the philosophy behind that is that it, it prevents jamming. Controlled feeding. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It was a controlled feed. And for every dangerous game rifle there was, was a control feed because basically they're all Morses. Yeah. And that was it. So that was, so that was it. So it was seen as, you know, in the rifle when you're in a clutch, when the, you know, the lion's about to chew on you, or <laughs> the rhino's about to stomp you, or the hippo's about to, you know, drown you, you want a control feed because you don't get jammed. However, for most of us, we run, we run what's called a push action, push feed. Um, that's just about every rifle there is nowadays. Push feed, and if you look at your Tika, that little kind of claw there, all that's for is extraction and ejection. Um, push feeds have, you know, through through better machining, almost done away with jams. It's very rare to jam around now. I've, I've jammed, actually, jam a jammed my Ruger, and the reason I the Ruger jammed was that the Ruger Scout used the, the quite famous Ruger um, M77 action, but used it with a box magazine. And what actually happened was the box would slot, the magazine itself would slightly move mm -hmm. and it would cause them to jam. And the, and the, um, the, um, the, the mod around that was actually to not use the, fa the factory metal box mags there was a polymer mag that was made that was much better fit and once you use that there was no more jams it just didn't jam again it was just simply that if you were in a hurry and you pushed it and if you kind of didn't push it at 90 degrees but kind of pushed down on it just it would, change the angle slightly. just change the angle a bit and it would jam but and once you did and i'd gone from tika to that and i was you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the smoothness <laughs> of the depth to jam yeah so you got push feed. So that's the rotating bolt, and I'm not going to go to the history of that because it's just there's there's lots there. But basically, you're either a mortar or a, or a Lee Enfield. That's what, that's basically you know that's the arm wrestle way back then. You've got lever action, 
which you know, yep. cowboy gun. Cowboy gun. Uh, yeah. So there's lots of different types of lever actions. Um, there's single shot lever actions. So technically, you know, I would regard a Ruger number one as a lever action. Yes, it is absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's just a single shot lever action, as opposed to a repeating lever action that has a magazine fed. Uh, straight pulls, which are becoming yep. more and more uh, common, though they're not new. Straight no, they're not. They've been around for a while. So the blazer has been around for years. Well, oh, that is, there was, there's a couple of um, European military, basically straight pulls. Right. Okay. Yeah, that concept, because um, it was seen as always faster. You know, you didn't yeah. have to rotate. Well, the, yeah. So I know the uh, the driven um, ball guys in the, in Europe love their straight pulls because they're so quick. It's just yeah, that's right. You don't have to rotate. Yeah. So exactly. There's one less action. In it. So you got straight pulls. Then you get into things like uh, pump actions. Um, probably the most common pump action rifle you see is that Remington Police pump action. Yeah, uh, it's a seventy-six hundred or something like that. It's basically a pump action rifle. But there's Remington made a number of pump action rifles, and there was other brands that made pump action rifles. Uh, and then we're probably I'm trying to think. There's no real more actions other than that. Other than well, you're gonna have a break action, break action, break action, so break action. Slide, lock, slide lock, lucky shotgun style. Yeah, 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 that's right. Rising bite, uh, uh, falling block, yeah, yeah. Break and then you've got those kind of um, so your break action, but then you have like the, the block action, like um, things like uh, though you know, I suppose martinis and snyders, in, in one way, they're kind of levers again, aren't they? Mm, that would be, yeah, yeah, that, that, so yeah, there's that. So, for most, you walk into a gun shop nowadays, the, the most prolific style of rifle you're going to see is bolt action or rotary. Rotating bolt action rifles. Yep, followed by lever, followed by straight pull would be yeah, monitoring. Followed by lever action. Though lever actions aren't that easy to get at the moment since, um, you know, when, when Remington went belly up and sold Marlin to Ruger, there was a there was a hiccup in production. You don't see um, as much in shops anymore, though there's a lot of people chasing them. Yeah, but straight as you said, straight pull seems to be becoming a bit more popular. And straight pulls, you know, uh, probably the the one that's most for us is the you know the Beretta BRX. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah, which is actually strange because it's a straight pull, but the bolt is kind of curved down, yeah, like a bolt action, but it's, yeah. it's differently. So you got that. So you got your straight pulls, and then you got your brake barrels, your single shots, and your doubles, and even you get into those weird things like drillings, which have three barrels. Yep. <clears throat> yep, absolutely. Good old Germans love them. That's right, they're all break. So that's the kind of actions you're going to get. So for for someone who's new and thinking about a hunting rifle, what you're actually buying is a rotating bolt action rifle, and it's called a repeater, and that is because it has some way of holding more than one shot in some type of magazine, either an um, internal magazine some kind of box magazine, tube-fed magazine, or whatever yep. things. 3030s, yeah. So that's right, yeah, tube-feds. But basically, so that gives you your ability to have it uh, being a repeater. And the difference between a repeater and an autoloader or a semi-auto is that you have to manually cycle that action for yep. it to fire once, eject, and load again. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's probably the the easiest way to describe that. So we're so for most of us, a hunting rifle is in fact a rotary bolt, rotating bolt. Sorry, rotating, not rotary. Rotary is a different thing again. Rotating bolt, repeating, 
repeating <laughs> raffle. Three to five shots, generally, depending on 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 the, the makeup. cartridge. Yep, cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the magazine. Yep. So Absolutely. you know, and some of those magazines are internal magazines that are rifles, so the you know floor plate style magazine. Mm -hmm. I've never owned a rifle with a floor plate. I have so my Brunos were falling with a full plate once. Yep. Yeah. Um, I with full plate. Yeah. I um yeah, it's a bit of a pain, especially for um and if you're doing a lot of like climbing over fences or climbing up tree stands, whatever, you want to obviously remove the rounds from the rifle to make mm. them safe. If it's a you know, if you if you can't quickly just pop out a magazine like you can with the Tikas and, and most modern rifles, um, it certainly makes slows things down. You're making a lot of noise, you've got to sit there and drop the plate out the bottom and take all the rounds mm. out without you don't want to cycle the bolt either because you've got a risk of a you know an accidental discharge or something like that. So having a uh, removable magazine for me when I'm choosing a rifle these days is an absolute must. I think it, it improves safety um, and just, it, it, it's, it's just so much easier to have a magazine and you can have a spare magazine. You can have an extra magazine in your pocket when you're chasing goats or something like that in the state forest. And you know, you've got a big, big mob of goats and you've only got four rounds, three rounds or four rounds or five rounds. You could have a, you know, another magazine that you can quickly drop one and pop another one in. And as you found out when we we're in, in the Pilliger, um, when, you, mm -hmm. when you took out that mob of goats, if you didn't have a second mag, you're not going to, you're not going to get half of them. So that's it. And like, you know, the, I suppose some of the um, criticism of an external a box magazine is that, you know, hunting rifles shouldn't have box magazines. But that's aesthetics, you know, the simple, the straight line. Though if you look at something like the, the um, Seiko, they've got a flush mount box magazine. Box mags, yeah. So... It's got the you know the 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 belly of that the as the aesthetics of a more traditional hunting rifle. With a, but with it's a a yeah, absolutely. It's just a flat mount box magazine. And I, I must admit my 3006, I generally use the little three shot in that. And it you can see it, but it's very, very it's it's, it's very, 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 very discreet. Yeah. Whereas with the um with the CDR it's a 10 round double stack. I don't care that it sticks out the bottom. It's, you know, oh, it's, it's, there's great. comfort in that. There's 10 stacks, <laughs> 10 stacks there. Though I never fill it up. I usually have no more than eight, but it's, you know, there's a 10 stacker there. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, so that's it. And that's one of those. So, yeah, and more and more um, hunting rifles are, 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 I suppose, moving to that external box magazine. And there is, to me, the, they make a lot of sense. All those things you said, they make a lot of sense. The easiest way to clear a, a, a box magazine rifle is, you know, drop the drop the magazine out and open the action, and that's yep. it. That's it's clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, loading it safely, you close the action, then put the magazine in, and you know it's closed you know, in a it's, that's it's right. an empty chamber. It's that's right. It's on a, it's a dead chamber. So that's exactly that's how I do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's an important thing. I don't. I never. People say, you know, what kind of safety do you like on a rifle? I don't. I don't know because I never use them. Mm. I always carry an un, unloaded rifle. Yeah. So. So I always close the bolt, pull the trigger, click, dead, put magazine in, completely inert. Mm. Um, so that when I'm shooting, first thing I do is I cycle with action. Yeah. 
that's the first. I know that's and I and I've I've done that for so long, and I've got into such a habit that when I was in England, and they shoot with the safety, so they load and had the safety on. When the munt jack came out, the first so quick. it was cranked and and out, out shot of barns, and they went, well, "What are you doing?" I said, "Oh, sorry, this just <laughs> wasn't habit." Sorry, and that's it. That's the first thing I did. Just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I do the same. I carry uh, empty chamber with the with the put the mag in on an empty chamber. Um, quite often, if if I see game or if I'm stalking in on game, I'll feed one, but I don't cock the bolt, so yeah. I don't use the safety either. Um, I leave the bolt risen, so it's the rifle's not cocked. Um, and 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 then I'll stalk in, and then as I'm coming in to shoot, I'll drop the bolt down. Um, and if something happens, you know, if I lose the animal moves behind a tree or whatever, put the safety, then I'll, then I'll use the safety, but I don't walk around with the safety on. That's not something no. I do. No. So, it's a, so that's a, you know, people talk about three position safety and things like that. I really don't have a, a lot of learnt experience with safety because I never use them. I don't, you know, I always carry an empty rifle. So, so that, so that's basically the the i suppose the heart of the, of the hunting rifle the action and we've got you know that for most people they're going to look at a, at a at a bolt action rifle what we'll call a bolt action rifle but i suppose the next thing that comes in line is stock material so you know where you and the rifle come together so and there's a like it like everything else there's a huge selection of stock material but yeah. i suppose you kind of if we're trying to categorise it, it's natural and then everything else. Synthetic, I guess, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's a huge... That's that a, opens up a can of worms, yeah. That's it. So, you know, natural being a piece of timber that's been shaped either by a stock maker or a machine into a rifle stock. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wooden rifle stock. But then there's a huge variance from there onwards in you know well there's there's obviously even if you're just looking at wooden stocks if you've got stock shapes um you know you've got the classic monte carlo style you can have all sorts of different styles you've got thumb hole where you can stick your thumb through which i've shot with and i don't mind it but would i ever own one probably not i think they look better than um than they shoot um but i've shot i've shot one and i think they're quite nice um from a, I, I I do love a wood stock. I think a, a really high grade piece of timber on a rifle just really finishes mm -hmm. it off, and I think it looks beautiful. Um, I think it looks absolutely stunning. Um, on your cheaper rifles, I find it can sometimes ruin the aesthetics a little bit, depending on the timber. Um, they try and make it look like yeah. an expensive piece of timber when it's not, and it just doesn't have that feel to it. Um, for me. I own both timber stock and synthetic, upper further synthetic, simply because I'm not precious about it. Um, I don't have to worry about, you know, if it gets a big scratch down it or, you know, if I damage the grade of the timber. And I think the synthetics are probably stronger in my view. Uh, and they're also not going to be impacted by, by weather conditions. So I know some, some timber can be affected by humidity, change in weather conditions, you know, swelling and shrinkage and, and heats, et cetera. With synthetic, you're not going to get that. Um, so I just prefer the, the standard synthetic on most of my rifles, um, but I am a sucker for a, a good piece of timber. Yeah, most definitely. I've and I've 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 got the 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 receipts to prove it. Um, 
<laughs> so if we start with wood, we've got what we might call traditional timber, which is a, a block of timber that's been, you know, one way or another, it's been shaped into a rifle. And as you said, there's there's grades to that from mm -hmm. basically packing crate to, you know, grade six walnut. Yeah, Turkish walnut. Yeah. Now I've got mine is Afghan walnut with um, New Zealand um, ebony end caps and grip caps. So, so there's that's kind of, and I think it was grade four. Um, and yeah. it took two hours to pick the timber. <laughs> literally, it's like buying a, it's like buying a really good suit. <laughs> it took literally two hours to pick the timber itself. So, and it's it's you know it's custom, so it's built to me. It's my length, so people pick it up and they find it a bit long and stuff like that because it's it's built to me. So you've got that, and then you've got like laminated timber, which is yep. uh, a rig was a laminated timber. Um, it was a very nice rifle, and it was laminated. Uh, and I did notice that there's this manufactured timbers coming more and more. Uh, I know. I'm pretty sure Marlin used to use it in one of their rifles. They used to have the Marlin 336 used to have an American walnut and this American hardwood, which was the cheaper one. And I'm pretty sure that was manufactured timber. Might, I might be wrong. But I was reading um, an ad by a European gun maker and they were doing manufactured timber. So it was had it had less walnut than other things mm. and you know it's basically kiln dried and put in a 30 ton press and pressed together but basically it's it's manufactured timber so there's you know as and as you said you can buy pretty cheap bits of wood yeah and you can buy it and it's so and and if you get in the shotguns then you just go up another six levels oh absolutely of, of timber you know and I guess, you know, you mentioned with the, the laminates as well. I mean, that's that's not a bad piece of timber. For me, I don't like it when they do the all the different colours and they make all the fancy patterns and that. For me, that kind of, that's just not for me. I know it's personal yeah. preference, but I'm not a big fan of the, the multicoloured laminates. Um, but again, if that's your thing, then that's, you, yeah. you've got the option to fully customise it. Well, that's the thing. Some of the laminates are quite discreet, while others are really, really, they play on the laminate. The Ruger had a slight greenness to the laminate, yeah. and it was look. I, I thought that was a really good stock. I didn't. That was. I didn't think much of it. That Ruger was a, an interesting rifle in that it always exceeded my expectations. I kind of bought it as basically a, a beater. I thought I'm just going to buy this thing, and I'm just going to not. I'm just literally going to buy this thing and not care about it. But I realised it was a lot better than I thought it was from a manufacturing point of view. It shot a hell of a lot better than I ever gave it credit for. And, you know, and it it, it was always better than I, ex than I expected it to be. And the stock was an example. It was a laminate stock, and I thought, oh, it'd be a bit crappy. No, it was a really well-made well, well -made laminate stock. So I guess um, you mentioned that the rigger was a scout. What What's the difference between a scout and a, and a normal rifle? Uh, okay, so oh, there's, there's a shit fight ready to happen there was a 
a guy called Jeff Cooper who invented or who who came up with this concept of the scout rifle. And I'm not going to summarise it because it, that's another three podcasts by itself. Um, basically, he came up with this idea. Of it was a, it was a bold? It was to be a bold action rifle of a certain weight and size that was able to engage medium size game, including humans, out to 300 metres. Okay. So it was this kind of like, you know, a scout rifle. You know, you could be on a, a horse, you could be travelling through somewhere, you had this rifle that you could use for, you know, getting meat, for protection, for all these kind of things. So it had to, it was it was the, some of the some some of the many um, um, requirements he came up with was about its calibre. It had to be the calibre of the standard military calibre, so three hundred eight. And it had to have a higher capacity, so it had to have a box mag, had to be a, over a certain, under a certain weight. I think the Ruger Scout was always a little bit over, but it was regarded because uh, the the Ruger Scout is actually Gun Sight Scout, and G U N S I T E, and Gun Sight is uh, a shooting school in the United States that Jeff Cooper kind of initiated so it was the, the but the first scout rifle that he put his name to i think was those um Steyr scouts oh yeah the built-in bipod and all that stuff but it was a so that was the ruger scout and the ruger scout from a rifling point of view was just basically um this different version of the ruger m77 action which is ruger's standard action just like remington's who's the 700 it was their yep. standard which is basically a detuned, commercialised Morser. They kind of looked at the Morser after World War II and said, oh, yeah, well, and that's basically what they got. So, so um, if you get into stocks, um, so you've got wood of varying types of wood, and then you get into all the other stuff, and this is where you get all sorts of things. So you've got, like, metal. So you got, you know, skeleton stocks, but you've also got your common things now is your chassis for mm -hmm. you know, guys at the practical long range. Chassis, you've got um, various types of thin synthetic material from basically nylon through to various composites. You've got fiberglass composites and, mm -hmm. and fiberglass slash carbon composite materials. That means the stock that I run is a composite, a competent, Composite, composite sock. Composite, yeah. <laughs> get that. Uh, yeah. So, so you've got, you know, so you've got that whole range. You've got those things like the Ruger, what we used to call the boat paddles, which were literally those plastic stocks. So, like, oh yeah, those are horrible. You know, yeah. Well, strange enough, people they've become this big collectible thing. Those things, <laughs> boat paddles. You know, when they came out, and went, what the? That's the crappiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Now. That's the that's the green ones, weren't they? With the well, basically, you know, it was like inleted plastic, yeah. And, yeah. and I think they actually had a bit of metal on them to give them just a bit of, you know, wear and tear. So they used to bump against things, but they used to call them canoe paddles or boat paddles. You know, they, that's what they look like. They look like a paddle. So you've got all those kind of varying materials, uh, you know, to make a stock, um, and then of course you get into stock design. So as you said, it's thumb hole. Um, uh, and uh, things like Mark 
Monte Carlo, which refer more more importantly to the comb, so where you yep. you put your cheek and your your more traditional pancake um, cheek pieces or stocks that are um, neither left or right handed, they're smooth, so they're ambidextrous stocks. You got and the so adjustable got, cheek pieces got, now as well. Adjustable cheek pieces. You got lots and lots of different designs and concepts coming in there. Um, my custom stock that I got made was initially he thought I'd want him. He thought I should go Monte Carlo, but he's made a, he made a very much a traditional African um rifle stock with a slightly higher comb but you yeah. really can't tell by looking at it so you know rather rather thin throughout the stock so the idea being you can grab it from any angle and shoot it from any angle whereas the the latest rifle the you know the, the cdr has and a lot of people have commented on that it has a very wide grip and it has almost that what they call that vertical grip so it's quite a straight drop most people who have picked up that rifle don't like that grip. I think it's too big. Okay. I, actually it, I actually find it really good. Yeah. Well, and, and talking about that, on I know on the, the, the CTX, and the, I think the T3Xs and that, you can actually adjust those. You can actually change out the grip so yeah. you can adjust it to personal preference. on to make the grip. Yeah. Wider. Yeah. But it's actually a quite a big grip. And and as I said, I've had friends pick it up and kind of go, oh, that's, that's really odd. But what you actually find is that, with that rifle, when you're shooting it offhand, that big grip really comes Helps. into play. Yeah. It anchors that rifle very well as an offhand shooter. So there's all sorts of design issues there with stock. So again, from a from a um, you know first time hunting rifle purchaser, we're going to look at a we're going to look at a, a bolt action rifle, and we want what's what we might regard as a hunting stock. There is a myriad of stocks you can look at, um, and I suppose if you would draw the line, stocks either lean more towards target or they lean more towards hunting, mm. depending on what you want. So things like thumb hole, that's a, that's that's primarily a target target yep. idea that's kind of migrated a little bit over to hunting, but then you get into things like the chassis and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's more your, ta your that tactical you, side. doesn't mean yeah. you can't hunt with those things. You can certainly hunt with them, but... Their primary purpose is one or the other. So, so you're seeing a lot of those tactical style stocks now. Um, mm. I wouldn't really want to carry one in the field, but That's certainly right. for, for for the hitting the range, there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, so if you it's so you need to think about what your primary purpose for that rifle is. If it's more hitting the range, then you want to lean more towards a range style stock. And you know, even you mentioned it before with the super varmint and that what we call the the beaver tail forehand mm. what the, the difference between a, a, a hunting forehand and a beaver tail forehand is the beaver tail forehand is fat fatter and flatter oh, yeah very fat, very flat. design to sit on a rest mm -hmm. yep that's on it. something flat where Farmed it, rifle. Yeah. that's right whereas a hunting rifle is that forehand is designed for you to hold it so it has a different shape and it's it width is different as well so we need to give that some consideration about where we're going to go one of the considerations, if you're a righty, so if you're one of the lucky ones and you get to have full choice of anything, <laughs> is the actual length of the stock from the factory. Yep. Um, there's a number of rifles that over time I've quite liked, 
but I've never been able to own because they're too short. Yep. So I find for me the Ruger is too short. I struggle with the Ruger when I've tried one. I've tried a few of them. The Rugers and the Brownings I find can be a bit short yeah. in the stock for me. Um, yeah, I struggle a little bit with fit. It just doesn't feel comfortable. I find them too hunched up. Yeah. Well, the Scout was the, – the benefit of the Scout was it was primarily supposed to be short, but what they did was you could actually space out the stock. It came with spaces to make it longer. But, yeah, I've always found, for instance, Browning to be a very short rifle. And some mm. of the Browning rifles have been lovely over the years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the A-bolts and the X-bolts and things like that, really, really quite nice-looking rifles. Pick them up. They're built for someone, you know, five foot eight. Yeah, so yeah, I struggle with them as well. Yeah. So that's a th- that's a consideration when you when you're thinking about rifle and you're thinking about brand. So you think if you've got an eye picture now, you're designing what I want or you know a, a whatever type of rifle. Have a look at what's available because from a factory they aren't all the same size. Just like you know anything else, you've got to find one. And I, I when people say to me what rifle should I buy, I said. Go to somewhere that has a, a range and start shouldering stuff. Yeah, make sure it fits, make sure it's comfortable. You can That's bring right. it up to the shoulder comfortably. I guess, uh, as you say, right-handers are probably more fortunate that um, yeah. left, lefty there's a lot less availability. But as you yeah. say, that's starting to increase. More and more manufacturers are bringing those out. So, um, But it, it's uh, it's hard to find. I know when you go to a, a gun shop, there's some gun shops have a lot in stock, some don't. So mm-hmm. you've just got to shop around and find the right fit for you. Um, and then once you found the fit, then you know you know that that's generally I find most teakers are pretty much the same across the different rifle types. So if you've got a T3, a T3 light, I don't know the new T3Xs. I don't know how they've changed, but I know with the T3s, for instance, the I had the T3 Super Varmint and the standard T3 was the exact same fit for me. So I know a teak is always going to fit. But if I was going to go and buy a new teak now, I'd go and try the T3X or the CTR and see which one fits me perfectly. Yeah. And if it didn't, I wouldn't buy it. Uh, I, it's, it's a generalisation on my part, but I've found that generally American rifles are a bit shorter than European rifles. Yeah, I would have to agree on that. I, yeah. I find that they're gen- not, all, not always, but generally. Remington probably being the one that pushes against that. Yeah, the Remington Seven Hundreds is a beautiful rifle. I love that rifle. Yeah, they're a bit longer generally because I, yeah. I hunted with the Seven Hundred in in um in the UK and it was it was one of the synthetics. I think it was the All Weather or something. I can't remember. AW AW AWR. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Right, you and I should probably remember it. It was a synthetic uh, carbon stock, sericated with a. And I thought that was actually from out of the box. That was a very nice rifle. Um, it was a it was really nice rifle. It was a great rifle. So you um, mentioned there seracoding. Um, I guess that's probably the next thing that people mm-hmm. can select when they're looking at a rifle is the finish of finish, yeah. the, of the actual rifle. So you mentioned seracoding. You can get the old school, which is the bluing, which is not yep. blue, but it's black, but it's that standard sort of. Um, mm. It's a very deep blue. Yeah, but it's generally most of them are black. I, I guess. Black, yeah. I guess seracoding is probably the more relatively new way of 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 um, finishing a rifle. Um, bluing is probably the old school way. Um, and then obviously you can get other other metals as well, like stainless steel. Um, yeah. Um, what do you prefer? Well, 
it's funny. Um, my last three rifles have all Zerko. Mm. So I had my my very nice thirty oh six started life as a stainless, but well, not 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 but European stainless, so not shiny stainless that they call the stainless, you know, the matte finished stainless. Yeah, about three years ago, it got cerakoted to midnight black, which is about the closest cerakote coming to a blued barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the action, everything got done that. So that rifle went from a from a lighter color to a darker color. Um, the Ruger was a again matte stainless type finish. That got blue, and the CDR is um, oh, sorry, not blue. Got cerakoted, got cerakoted um, uh, black, um, and the CDR is uh, cerakoted, what they call a dark earth, so a brandy coyote style tan um, uh, cerakote. And one of the reasons why um, I cerakote my rifles is one um you know again being a lefty i was kind of limited in what i could find um but also i I think it ultimately lays another protection on your rifle Mm. it's definitely a much hard wearing surface generally and you can scratch it it does Mm. It's it's not like you know impervious but it does present another level of protection i think does something and people in Cerakote might be now listening and not very happy with what I'm about to say, but I think it does change the way the barrel heats and cools. Okay. I think it does. And the only reason I say that is when I got the Scout Cerakoted, it's how it shot changed. Really? Okay, that's interesting. Didn't go, didn't go bad. It changed, yeah. right? and same with the Tika. Again, it didn't go. Oh God, that's the end of it. Can't hit. It can't hit anything. But it changed. It's the way. It it's it way it um, fired after a few. You know the way it it's behaved. Yeah. yeah. Way it behaved in regards to heat changed. I'm think I'm wondering if that's something to do with the Cerakote. That's just the way it disperses heat, I guess. Or yeah, uh, it, well, it, it had a different effect on, it had an effect on heat in regards to the barrel. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It changed it. It, changed it. I can't exactly explain how it changed it, but it did change it. And I'm pretty sure it did too. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like, um, yeah, so I found that was the case. So, which is why I'm very, very... Um, Concerned with uh, cold bore shooting because mm. you know we're hunting. So like, I went to I went to Nundal and I shot three shots. The reason I shot three shots was the first two shots I killed deer, and when I shot the second deer, um, I ejected the case and then moved forward. And my son came up and said. You know, where's the case? I went, <laughs> sorry, mate. So I literally chambered around and fired one into the dirt and said, here's a case. <laughs> that was it. So, 
that was you know that was my three shots for the weekend yeah two two in an animal one in the dirt so i could give him a case um and so you know that's fundamentally different to someone who's target shooting and things like that so absolutely so yeah. how that rifle performs cold is very important to me um you know i mean you know that you got the brisbane valley chasing deer and then you see that red deer you want to know what's going to happen because you know exactly want to know exactly where it's going to go you've gone from days of prep you know weeks of planning days of preparation hours of stalking seconds it all comes down to this second or two yeah so you want you want that to be what you want to, that to not be a what if you don't want to start thinking what if there so that's so cold is very important to me in a rifle and what about um barrel condition and i mean by barrel condition is do you prefer to keep your rifles clean do you clean them after every hunt do you keep them dirty no no, no, no. don't clean them after a hunt do you put oil do you put any oil down the barrels i just i just you know um hoppies and um and a patch through I or using a ram oil at the moment remington thing mm -hmm. but only because someone gave it to me yeah. i'm not that i'm not that pedantic about cleaning in uh, probably, so I, like I probably lean to the other way if i was being typically facetious i would say my rifle is always one shot dirty Okay. The last shot cleaned out the stuff before that, so it's always one shot dirty. <laughs> so yeah, I like to keep I like to keep my rifle dirty, um, as in I don't clean it after every hunt. Um, and after a range session, I'll put a, a patch through with a bit of rem oil or something like that, just to make sure it doesn't rust. Um, I'll, I'll yeah. oil the outside, but otherwise I don't clean it. Yeah, range is different. Range is different because you know you're shooting 40, 60, and in fact. I generally, if I'm at the wrong, well, now that Belmont's changed and you've got to get out of there in two hours, you know. Yeah, it makes a but big when, difference. When you had time, I used to clean my rifle at the range. Mm. I used to do it there and then I'd go home and put it away. Yeah. I would literally clean it there, shoot, clean it there, put it away, and that was done. But, yeah, from a hunting situation, no, I don't. Because, you know, it's one shot. Yeah, exactly. I'm the same. It's yeah. That's it. So that's it. I mean, geez, if, it, if it requires me to clean after every shot, I'm I'm not shooting deer. I'm shooting, you know, Olympics or something. <laughs> so I suppose now we're kind of moving to getting circle back to your question about sights and mounts and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And again, you know, I suppose the underlying question here is what are you using your rifle for? has a great deal of um, influence on your scope, type of scope, and your mounting systems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you could you could decide to do open sights if you wanted to, if you're down the range and, so, you know, the old school, you know, an older school rifle or maybe a, a little 22 with um, some open sights. I know my, my Morza that I had that I recently sold, the 458, that had the old peep sight with a little hole oh, where you look through. Yeah, they had the peep on it proper old school World War II style, um, where you would line up the rear peep sight with the front um, pin, and that's where you're on. But generally, um, most people are going to run scopes. I think majority of people hunting or target shooting um, on a modern rifle will use a scope. Um, it's certainly going to aid in your 
accuracy and, and, and ability to take animals. Um, you know, it just really does extend your capabilities of that rifle. Um, so yeah, most people are going to have a scope. Um, and I guess majority of rifles, people would need some sort of mounting system, um, i.e. are they going to have rings? Are they going to have bases? Do they need both? Um, you know, the, the other option is going to be the Picatinny rail that I mentioned earlier. There seems to be a, a, a myriad of options out there. Um, what's your go-to mounting? Um, I tend to want to go low and simple um, and uncluttered. So I want I I don't I don't I don't even particularly like the base ring combination. I like a a, a single the single unit, yeah. Single unit that's got weaver tail. I think the I think they call them something like that. Yeah. You know, it's incorporated. So it's the mounting ring that has that has a has has an integrated base. So it goes straight on to the straight on to the rifle, depending on the rifle. So for instance, Riga, um what people don't realise is, and they get they 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 make it's a pretty typical mistake with Rigas is that the the rings are different heights because the action is stepped. Right. Okay. So if you get it wrong, you know, you scout your rifle, you scout your foot. I can't remember. It's either up or down, but basically you've got, there's a back and a front one because they're different heights. Mm. I think the back one is taller It's because it drops down. So they're different heights. So, um, but yeah, I like, you know, so that the, the integrated system so you know, and I like. I usually like a um, four grub screw mm -hmm. across the top. Um, one, you know, so one, two, three, four, and the single locking scrub, grub, or whatever it is on the so it locks onto the on the integrated rail in the top of in top of the action. Um, I've had rifles with Picatinny's, the Scout being one of them. Um, and when we actually built the the custom rifle, the Indy, the question they immediately said, what, what what kind of rail you want? I said, I want a rail. I, want, I, I actually don't like rails, and the reason I don't like rails is I don't like the aesthetics of a rail. Mm. I just like that really clean line across the top. Um, so that that's it for me. So I, I'm I'm really much a very clean straight line when it comes to. The mounting system. What I'm going to include in there is I'm going to include, uh, and it's changed over time. I must admit, I for long for the longest time preferred low-powered scopes. So I generally, it was a one and a half, one and a half to five or one to six when I bought this Suaro. But it was low powered because I generally hunt on two to three power. Mm -hmm. um, my last two scopes have been um, like two to two to two to ten and two to twelve because you know the the multiplier in scopes has changed has improved. Yeah. So you can get a two to ten. You get a five time multiplier. I must uh, and and admittedly they they're carried generally still on three to four. But you know, when you get to the range, you want to wind them up. You've got that option. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and I generally used to stay away from a bigger front op objective, but um, 
I, I've, I've slightly changed on that. Um, it just from what I found with the scopes, the fact that, you know, once upon a time, you kind of, if you want low power, it was a low powered scope. Now you can kind of get a scope that does both, which is very, very, yeah. which is, is still novel, but also very, very appealing. Um, and then, of course, you throw in the, um, the illuminated reticle, which comes in again. And I, again, used to, um, well, I still do. I, I prefer a simple reticle, but Same some thing. of the scopes I have now don't have simple reticles, but they work. Um, you know, the German number four was. That's my favourite four right. so yeah. I carried on them for a long time. And it was Same. just like, yeah, there it is, target bank shoot. Mm. Um, and what I find with some of the newer reticles, even though they're more complicated than a German number four, they still allow that because of their design features. <clears throat> and especially if they've got a luminate reticle. Yeah. And uh, like I've got two, two, I've got three now at the moment, at the moment. I've got three Steinoscopes, all with illuminated reticle, and three different in the range. I've got a Predator, a Ranger, and um, a, a, a Night Hunter, I think they call it. And strange enough, the Predator, which is the kind of the lower end of those three scopes, its illuminated reticle is not a dot, it's a little cross. Okay, that's and different. It is fantastic. Um, it's just this, so uh, you've got the scope and then in the center, you've just got this small cool. illuminated cross. And, uh, mm -hmm. and the, um, I can't think what they call them, the proper name from now, the, you know, the, the horizontal lines. I can't remember what they call them now. It's escaped me. They have a proper name, of course. But the ones on the uh, Predator 4, uh, appear thicker to go thinner and they okay. tend to push your into that you tend, it's kind of like you're looking down a tunnel and you look yeah, it's sort of directing your eye yeah, it just pulls your eye and I, I found that so yeah I, I those um range of six are a great scope but those predator four which are cheaper mm. damn fine scope uh, you know two to ten I think it's a 42 front objective, so it's not big. It's low profile. It's 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 pretty compact design. It's got a lovely big eyepiece at the front with lots of you know eye relief, and you say you can mount it mount low to your scope. It's um got um it doesn't have turrets because I'm not a big fan of turrets. I just like dials. Mm -hmm. Get them dialed in. Screw that cap on. Never come off. Stay there. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm the same thing. I like yeah, mine simple. I'm the same. I like mine low. Um, I don't like. I've tried quick detach mounts once. Took them off. Didn't like them. Found they were clunky and caught on clothing and bushes and trees. And I've never tried removing the scope and putting it back on to see if it maintained its point of impact. Yeah. Um, I've never tried it. Um, I believe they're very good. But again, I go simple, uncluttered. Just I like it. I'm the same. I don't like turrets on my rifle. Uh, sorry, on my scope. I want to just have it shooting where I want, where I know it's going to shoot. I don't want to play with it and adjust it. And yeah, keep keep it simple. That's my, my, my I, had a, I had I had worn the the worn quick detach on the um, 30.06 with the Suaro for a number of years, and they are really good. Um, you know, they are really good mounts. But I I I never quick I never used them. Mm. Oh, quick detach that never moved. 
So yeah, so I, I, I think I sold them a little while ago. Um, but yeah, because they just didn't move. So that you know, the, that it was a great concept. But I, and speaking of that quick detach, when I was at on target, they showed me this um, stinoscope that looks like it. It uses some integrated. I you know it was didn't even really get a good understanding of it, but it looks like an integrated. Um, detaching mechanism that was actually, and what I mean by integrated, was actually integrated into the scope. Okay. So the scope was the thing that, so there must have been some kind of fixed mounting on the rifle. That it attaches to? Up and put the scope on. Okay. So that, you know, so it wasn't like a, a kind of mount. No, the, the, the mount looked very, would have been just basically a lug. It was a scope to it. So it'd be interesting to see where that's going in terms of that kind of technology. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And I guess from a from a rifle perspective, what else could people be considering? You know, what are you, what are your thoughts on muzzle brakes? Or um, I don't like muzzle brakes. The reason they're not, I like they're, they're brakes, not nice at the range. The reason I don't like muzzle brakes is I've sat next to people at the range who've the range. got exactly the same. And I, I I always seem to get sat next to someone with a with, like. a with a muzzle brake on. Yeah, they're not they're not very pleasant. I mean. Look, I might have an, uh, I suppose, a, a an old school or a, uh, a you know, a, a hardened approach to this, but I don't see the value in a muzzle brake on a hunting rifle. Um, I just don't see it. I mean, if you, I can understand if you have a large caliber target rifle and you're shooting it a lot. You might go, I'd like a muzzle brake on this thing. But if you're shooting a hunting rifle, I can't see the, the point of a muzzle brake. Um, just can't see it. Uh, and I, you know, I've shot rifles, and as, as I view, with, you know, moderators hanging off the front of them, which yep. are, you know, the ultimate muzzle brake. I mean, they, 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 they do fundamentally change the, the, Absolutely. Yeah. the rifle. You know, it's quieter, but it's also got this, you know, it's a big, heavy, to yeah. nine to twelve inch tube on the end of it. That's basically sucking, you know, just dis, 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 displacing all this energy type thing. Yeah, yeah, but I guess it. it I mean, the, the shooting that I used to do in the UK was there wasn't a lot of walk and stalk. You know, we weren't putting a rifle on our back and going walking through, you know, Pellegrino or Severn for three, four hours at a, at, a, at mm. a time. You were generally walking a couple hundred meters, climbing into a high seat, or walking right. the edge of woodland. So, so you can get away with that extra weight. Plus, it's a, it's a much more densely populated area, the UK, yeah. and you're quite often shooting, you know, with a road behind you, or a bridle way, or a footpath, yeah, or something right. like that. So, so the impact to to your neighbours and to the general public is 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 far more reduced when you're using one of those muzzle brakes. Uh, sorry, the moderators. Plus, your hearing. You know, it's it's yeah. it's going to save your hearing. Um, but when you're out in the middle of the Pilliger or, you know, Severn or wherever you're hunting, you're probably going to shoot one or two shots. A muzzle brake's not going to help you. Yeah, and... I, I really can't see the benefit of them. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, there's a lot of, there's more down, there's more downside than there is benefit. Mm. I'd hate to be carrying a, a, a moderator <laughs> up and down my red block. I'd be broken by the end yeah. of it. So. Well, you just, yeah, you yeah, you do. But yeah, so not a big fan of muzzle brakes. Don't really see them as a hunting tool. I'm sure there's someone who who, who would argue against that. But for for the type of hunting that I've done for the 
for, for my life. A muzzle brake would be more of a, you know, would be more of a hindrance than a benefit. Um, and I suppose the other thing we've got then is we've got the bipods. Mm. Um, the funny thing about bipods is it's something that I've experimented with constantly for, I don't know, since I started this, you know, shooting sticks versus bipods, versus, you know, around and around and around and around in circles. And, you know, bipods have got so much better too, you know. The, oh, yeah, absolutely. The, there is a number of really good brands out there, but, you know, you know the Spartan brand is probably, you know, the, the Javelins and stuff like that. Mm. that. That's really, they brought a new, you know, a new level of um, design yeah. and, and usability to them. The old Harris styles with the big heavy springs, you know, the trapdoor thing, they slap forward and slap yeah. back. Oh yeah, I mean, I carried I carried a Harris on the front of mine for for a long time, um, mm. and then yeah, I've upgraded to the to the Spartan. Um, I just love it because you know you can have the um, the mounting point you know, fitted to the rifle. You don't have this big, heavy, bulky yeah, metal-bodied um, bipod on the front, and then you can click it on and off when you need it. I mean, I've yeah. shot quite a few animals off a bipod. Um, there's not to say that you know I couldn't have found a suitable rest, but I had the bar pod available to me, so I used it, yeah. and it was a, a, a solid rest. But being able to, with the spot, and take it on and off as and when you need it is awesome. Um, and I've actually got the um, the other head that they've got, which is the Davros, which actually yeah. fits fits onto my shooting stick. Yeah. And so I could use a bar pod, a shooting stick, whichever I wanted, with that same adapter on the front of my rifle. Yeah. It just clips on, so it's a great piece of kit. Um, although quite often I find I either shoot off a tree or shoot off hand, uh, especially in the yeah. thick scrub. You don't have time yeah. to get sticks and or anything like that out. That's right. And so look, you know, it, it's always been a, it's always kind of a. I'm never sure which one to go for. I I, I alternate, and I think that's because I I, I haven't figured it out yet. Um, and so the other the the one that. I move from by from a bipod is to shooting sticks and shooting sticks no doubt again from a static position they are wonderful things to have but again they're another thing you need to carry and you've got to get out and things like that so it it you know it reflects the situation that you find yourself in and i've yeah. got a nice set of shooting sticks but i just don't tend to carry them that often yeah, you see, I carry mine, so I use mine for glassing, so I'll use them as a rest for my binos as well. I use them to assist me on steep country, which is more of like a, a walking pole type thing, because um, mm. mine are the adjustable ones, the Primos, that you can go up yeah. and down with. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I use them for leverage, I use them for glassing, I use them for shooting off. Um, I put the camera on them as well if I need yep. to. I've got the universal adapter that the camera can fit on, so I can do some videoing. I just find it but you are carrying it all day. You, if if you want to use them, you got them in your hand the whole time. And you got a rifle, and you got a backpack. It's a lot of kit, um, so you got to carry it. I found that I was putting my shooting sticks in my backpack, and after a day, I'd realised that I'd carried my shooting sticks around all day. Yeah. yeah. At your back, I'll be seeing videos myself, and I can see it's above my shoulder. There's a there's a yoke sticking up there. <laughs> I'm just taking this thing for a walk. I'm not using it. Yeah. And um, so yeah, and so that's 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 a really important consideration about, and ref, it's really a reflective of the type of shooting you find yourself doing. Mm, definitely, yeah, definitely. You know, because there is certain situations where bipods are just, 
you know their goal but you've got to be in the right position you've got to, or you've got to be in the right kind of circumstance other times they just get in the way so you've got to really understand the kind of hunting you're doing when to determine if a bipod or shooting sticks or neither is the appropriate you mm. and i suppose the final piece of the puzzle then is things like rifle slings and just like bipods, rifle slings is something that I've gone through so many iterations trying to find the best rifle sling, and I haven't found it yet. Yeah, I'm the same. I've tried the safari slings. I've tried the standard over the shoulder. I've tried the, the neoprene ones. I've tried leather ones. Um, there's, yeah, there's so many different styles out there. You've really just got to find the one that, that you're comfortable Very with. Very interesting thing. So on the... Um, on the CTR, I have a, I think it's Dingo, so it's Australian leather sling. And on my 3006, I've got a Holland Holland sling because I bought it from Holland Holland when I was in England. <laughs> and um, I found the very best thing to do with the sling is I actually made, I'm going to bend up a bit, got the toaster out and bend up a bit of plastic. And I, it's a little clip that I can clip on my backpack harness and so i can just clip the sling into it so it holds it there so mm, it, it does slip the shoulder. Back a little bit and so I'm, what i'm thinking is i'm going to put another clip on the sling itself so they comes up against up it yeah. and they stay there and i found that's probably the best for me mm, yes yeah. sling idea um, yeah, it isn't. It isn't annoying when it slips off the shoulder. All the time. It does, well, it doesn't slip that way because the thing stop. It's mm. it goes it goes back backwards. Like that, rolls slightly backwards. Mm. So I'm going to put something on the sling there, so it locks in place, and that's it. But yeah, I've tried safari slings. I've tried. <clears throat> haven't even tried one of the Rhodesian slings. You know that three point weird thing. Yeah. That everyone raves about. I haven't tried that. Um. Tried the you know the webbing ones the yeah gone through them all like, like, a little while ago I gave away about five different slings I said who wants a sling and people said, oh well what kind you got well I got this guy I got this yeah, this one what do you want? pick and they, you know they all went yeah but I just can't that's one of the things that I'm yet to figure out what I what I want in that what kind of sling. and it'll, it'll continue to change someone will come up with a new idea and give it a test and see how it goes until you find the right one. Well, at the moment, because, you know, well, not at the moment, but for, for a while now, I've been carrying a camera on a tripod. So the slings become more important in a way. Mm, definitely. You need your hands, yeah. I've got to find that because, you know, it's just another item to carry. Mm, definitely. Mm. I can't think of anything else other than maybe a recoil pad. Yeah, I do like to carry. I do put a recoil pad on my three hundred eight. Um, is it necessary? Yeah, I think it does help. Uh, adds a little bit of length of pull as well. If you've got a shorter, shorter stock pull, mm. and for so your larger I calibers, so. I shot lever action for a very long time, and they don't have traditionally don't have recoil pads. In fact, some of them had brass plates on the back of them. Um, and I don't know. So. I find a recoil pad is much more um, useful as a length of pull than it is yeah. to limit recoil. Yeah, definitely. Unless don't. you've got a brass plate, then yeah, there's not much it's going to yeah. do, I don't think. But 
And the reason for those people wondering why they put brass plates, brass plates are a hangover from um, um, from muzzle loaders. Yeah. So, so when the rifle, you know, who's on oh, the when, you jam, when you're jamming the the ball in, yeah, to protect yeah. the rifle when it's on the ground. Okay. Hangover from that, you know, when you literally put the stock on the ground and start pouring the shot, the harder down the muzzle, you had to have something to protect the stock because it was on the, literally banging on the ground or on, or on something. So that's what it was. It was a hangover for for protection of the stock, and also, of course, then you can use your stock to came in someone's head when you when you after your first shot but it, that's what it was. it was it was a hard number stock and in fact you look at uh, a lot of the antique pistols they also you know the flintlocks especially they've got that brass around like someone grip, okay. but you would use it to clock someone on the head with is just as much as you use it for so the, you know man killer at both ends type thing yeah yeah well you've only got one shot it's gonna take you that's a, it you only got one shot. Then, then it's just a very fancy club <laughs> and in fact, the British Navy ones used to, they actually used to drill of, of using the pistol by the barrel with the sword. So you would actually use it to catch and deflect. So, so you know, you would fight okay. sword and pistol mm. other way. If they shoot the pistol, then turn around and, and use it that way. Okay, interesting. Yeah. That was it oh, for, the, for the Navy. That was one of their, their fighting drills. Use it to as a as as a wet, you know like a deflection against swords. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so very different times. But um, so yeah, so with rifles, most hunting rifles come with a recoil pad. Most lever actions don't. It was mm. it's not, it's not a typical thing. And you know, and lever action stocks are usually thinner too and shorter so they're a bit meaner on the, on the on shoulder they do bite a punch a little bit yeah um so if you're going to buy a 45 70 guide gun if it's got a recoil pad on you might want to put one on yeah, it's going to kick yeah, that's 45, and that's going to boot and it's going to hurt <laughs> um so but yeah that's another consideration and then you and there's a, there's a whole range of um types of recoil pads you know and then there's even when they you know, they put the um, capsule in the um, stock itself. They put the, yeah, the, the, the counterweights, yeah. 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 Basically to to absorb energy. Oh, I think if you I've need to do that, the calibers are big. Recall, I've seen mechanical recoil pads with, like, spring systems in them mm -hmm. and things like that. So there's all sorts of different types of ways of recoil. But if you need that for a hunting rifle, you're shooting a too big a caliber. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, if you... If you shoot it, if, if you really, if the recoil pad is the thing that's making your mind up about shooting that rifle or not, then maybe you're not shooting the right rifle because um, rifle weight, you know, density on that stuff has just, just so much um, impact on reducing felt recoil as anything else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. The weight of the rifle, it's just, absorption of it's you know it's just absorbing energy and stuff like that so these are all the things that you need to consider um when you're buying that rifle and also from a you know a physical stature as well you're not going to go if you're a big burly bloke you don't really need a very light you know thin little rifle it's not going to yeah. fit you very well and, and opposite as well if you're you know quite small or a petite female etc you're not going to go and buy a big heavy magnum caliber and not expect it to beat your shoulder it, 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 it's going to do what it's going to do so, you know, you need to be aware of that and understand that.
yeah, it needs to be the right rifle for you. I think it's got to be the right fit. Um, it's got to be comfortable, um, and it's got to be yeah, the right caliber as well. Um, it's just it's all got to come together, and it's going to become this package that's just perfect. When you pick it up to your shoulder, it should just feel feel right. And if you don't feel it, try try another one until you find that. Right. And you know the segue right back to the very beginning. It's going to ultimately come down as what is what is the intended use here. Mm, definitely. And intended use is about intent. So you can use a target rifle to do anything with, but it's going to primarily be best at one thing as opposed to the other thing. So like I said, when I had that two to three, that was I had a um, Tika two to three in the, in the in standard hunter okay and that was a very serviceable and very fun range gun you know it shot well it was accurate it was cheap it was light it was easy but it wasn't really a target rifle but then again i wasn't really target shooting, shooting. competition i was just having fun and it was perfect for that kind of that kind of usage um if I was going to shoot competition, I probably wouldn't have got that configuration. Um, vice versa, if I was going to hunt, I would, you know, I, I was. It was more the right configuration. So that comes down to, and then it, and then you ask yourself, well, what kind of hunting you do doing? So if you're hunting um, from where you can primarily take a rest on something like that, you're not carrying rifle great distances. Not walking over, you know, up and down dials, and you can have a heavier caliber, heavy, heavier barreled, more target varmint style rifle. If you if you if you're doing the hard yards, you don't want your rifle to be slowing you down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So again, it's come down to that intent of what you intend to do with it. Absolutely. I can't think of anything else, mate. No, me neither. I think that's a good place to end it. I think that's rifle so if you're listening and you've got questions you've got observations you want to tell me that i've got something completely wrong that's okay uh leave a comment uh, get get in touch with us but that folks i think unless you've got anything else Jono? no nothing else from me mate i think we call it there it's the compendium to caliber craziness <laughs> and because ian's not here we rip through this one we yeah, absolutely. We didn't, we, didn't have to, we didn't have to answer questions like, what's a trigger? <laughs> oh. Okay. Cool. Thanks, mate. Good night. That's it for me. Good night. Adios, mate. And next time.